Amen. Once again, I'm dilly-dallying in the back there, so I don't know. Oh, sorry. You okay? <laughs> I kind of punched her as she went by, so... Hey, good morning, everybody. <laughs> so that's an awesome ministry that they're doing, and I just love that. And if you'll just keep them in prayer and keep the, the work that New Day is doing uh, in, your, in your prayers and in your thoughts, and maybe even check in with them. If you've got time and want to invest that time in, in helping with that ministry, uh, that's a, we highly recommend that. It's a great ministry to, to be involved in. Uh, but right now, we're going to get into our, our Bible study. So Christmas uh, is officially, uh, the Christmas season has completely exited now. We're done with the holiday season. Everybody, so everybody does the holiday stuff differently. Uh, I'm just, I happen to be someone who, um, as soon as, as Christmas is over, I'm working at taking down the decorations and getting this. Usually at my house, it's usually no more than two days after Christmas until Christmas is banished to the attic yet again. Get the hints, Christmas, and all that calories. And, and so... Don't get me wrong, though, because I love Christmas. I mean, I love the season as it's coming in. It's just so wonderful. I love the build-up to it. I, I, I love all the, the traditions that we have associated with it. Robbie and I, we, our tradition is, is we set up the tree, and we always have Die Hard on in the background. You know, it's Christmas, Theo. It's time for miracles. My daughter, or sometimes it was my daughter's this year, uh, will come over to my house, and we work at putting the lights up around the house. And it's just a great time. I love every part of that. But when it's done... I equally love pulling all that stuff down and getting it out of there. House just feels cleaner and bigger once Christmas is all out of there. I don't know if you feel the same way or not, but I might be weird that way. But I love Christmas's arrival and its departure almost equally as much. And for the next few months, my mind is set on springtime. I'm looking forward to the warm weather and the beach days and the, you know, the... So we had that freeze a while back, and I mean, I had so many plants die, and even trees that died. Anybody else go through that? I mean, I lost a lot of stuff. So for me right now, I'm all excited, because I'm thinking about getting all that old dead stuff out of there and planting new things, you know, pulling up all the ravaged and withered leaves so that we can get something planted. We got new life, and the wonder of that new life growing up and, and taking over that area. I'm excited about it. I'm looking forward to it. And that's kind of the attitude that the Apostle Paul has. Well, you see, I did that. The Apostle Paul had when it comes to our relationship with Christ. His writings are always encouraging us to be done with all that tattered old dead stuff that we used to be participants in and taking on this new life that we've received from Jesus. Uh, We've been away from it for almost a month now, but um, today we're going to return to our study in the book of Ephesians. And that right there, the idea of coming into this new life has been the theme of Paul's writing in this letter. And if you've got a Bible or a Bible app with you, if you'd like to go to Ephesians chapter 5 and follow along on your own, I highly recommend it. Uh, so you'd want to go there now. Just to give a quick recap, Ephesians is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the ancient church in Ephesus, which is in Asia Minor. And it's a unique letter that he wrote in that it doesn't have uh, a, a specific controversy that he's addressing in this. Rather, in this, in this particular letter, he spends the front end of it in, in a very dense theological treatise on uh, gaining the, uh, 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 a revelation or comprehending the revelation of the good news. That's in chapters 1 through 3. And then that good news, he elaborates, is that, that God is reuniting heaven and earth through Christ and that we're participants in that. That's the gospel, that, that heaven is invading earth and it's a wonderful thing. And then in the second part, chapters four through six, Paul encourages us to respond 
to the revelation by living out a, a reunited heaven and earth in our lives, by living like this new redeemed humanity that we claim to believe in. Not living virtue, virtuously to be saved, but living virtuously because we're saved, because we represent in our life what it is we believe in our hearts to be true. So that's the section that we're presently in uh, in Ephesians. He's exhorted us to leave our old dead ways behind and, and live from this new life that we've been given in Jesus. And then in the last section that we were looking at last time, in the last teaching, he, he used the metaphor of light and darkness as an illustration for how we, could, we should conduct ourselves. Light as always representative of God's order and, and his intent for life and how we go about experiencing this life that he's given us. So it was a, you know, if you were here for that one, it was a challenging section of scripture. Paul was uh, really meddling in our lives, uh, but chin up because it only gets worse from there. Um, today, we're going to pick back up in chapter five, and Paul is going to set up a series of contrasts that are meant to help us get a practical view on how it is that we go about this redeemed life. And it's all going to be in the context of other people. So remember that. The Christian life, it's all about how it is that we're interacting with others. It's not something that's lived out or expressed in isolation. It's something that's a community-wide experience. And the whole section here goes from verse 15 of chapter 5 all the way through chapter 6 and verse 9. We're only going to deal with the preamble, which is chapter, uh, verses 15 to 21. In that, Paul is going to set the stage for this epic subversion of cultural norms that he's about to get into, but I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. So uh, if you're there in Ephesians 5, we're going to pick up where we left off, starting with verse 15. And this will be good because it's a, it's a new section. So he's, he's going into it. It says, uh, so, and, and real quick, uh, okay, he's going to bog down on every word, right? No, but, but, <laughs> but the word so could also be, and is oftentimes in other translations, translated as therefore. And whenever we see a therefore in the text, we have to stop and ask what, what it's there for. And so what it means is that in light of everything he said so far about living from this new life and discarding our old lives, he says there in, in verse 15, be careful how you live. And then he's going to set up a series of contrasts in this. And I want you to pay attention uh, to, to these because they're, they're really important in this. He says, don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. When we read a phrase like that, make the most of every opportunity, as modern Westerners, we're normally thinking of good time management, you know, like be efficient with your time. That's not what he means by this. Literally, he's saying in this, rescue the time from this evil age. In other words, you know, time is under the influence and control of that something in the air that's, that's moving things in certain ways. Our goal is to rescue it, to make the most, to, to redeem that time so that it's used differently than the evil that's around us. Verse 17, don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine. That will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves and making music to the Lord in your hearts. And give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a pattern that's present in these contrasts, and I don't know if you caught it or not, but it's there. And everything that he says revolves around here. It's all in this. He contrasts fools with wise. He 
contrasts thoughtless with understanding. Drunk contrasted with being filled by the Holy Spirit. These are all connected with the way we think about life and comprehend the world around us, which then will influence how we behave, influences how we carry and conduct ourselves. Now, in modern terminology, we would call that a worldview. Worldview is our collection of thoughts and attitudes about life and the world around us, which inform our priorities and our values, which then inform our behavior, how it is that we live. Verse 17 sort of sums up Paul's exhortation. Don't act thoughtlessly. That is, don't just mindlessly accept whatever it is that's all around you or whatever way in which the world or the culture or the society is going. That, that, that something in the air that he talked about in chapter one, that power in the air, that something in the air that influences and moves us, the, the, the cultural influences of whatever time and place that we're in, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Interesting contrast that he sets out there. Set out to discover what God wants our lives to be like, not just what the status quo or common sense is. Living wisely then becomes the theme. And I believe that the first point that we gather from this is that we live wisely when we're actively pursuing God's intent for our lives. By using these contrasts, Paul is trying to make the point that, 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 that a wise life in God is going to be countercultural. So it's going to require effort on our part to think differently from the world around us. I've said many times before, you know, we'll never drift into a godly life. If we drift, we're just being carried thoughtlessly, thoughtlessly, mindlessly along with whatever cultural currents are at work. And I know we're living in a very divided culture right now, a very divided society. You've got, especially along political lines, people are thinking right and left. And oftentimes when we say things like that, you're thinking right or left on political divides. And, and you may be even wondering, Rob, what are you talking about here? Right or left when it comes to, to this drifting along? Yes, because all of it, according to the biblical narrative, all of it is drifting, is moving away from God's original intent. This is true for every generation and culture, the currents of this world all flow away from God's order and his intent for, for life. Now, that is not to say that nothing positive happens in this world or that there is nothing in this world that's in sync with what God wants. Certainly there are those places where God's intent and programs of this world will overlap and, and be in harmony. But I'm saying that in terms of a cultural or, or a societal mindset, for the most part, things are flowing counter to God's intent or God's ways. That's why Jesus was so confusing to people. <laughs> when he comes along with these values and priorities and worldviews that are upside down from what everybody understands to be common sense. How do you get ahead in this world by loving your enemies? How could that possibly work? How can you overcome and be victorious by laying your life down for someone else? That's why we have to actively pursue God's intent. We have to stop and think about what we hear and see and measure it with God's revealed ways. Really, measure it by the standard of Jesus. Uh, before we ever accept it or employ it 
in our own lives, in our own attitudes, before we allow it to be the thing that shapes our worldview. What Paul is telling us here is that our worldview needs to be shaped by God and what he's revealed his intent to be. And that requires discipline. It requires, you know, it, well, that's where we get the word disciple. I mean, it's the discipline of following the Jesus way of life. It requires the courage to be different when societies in general demand conformity. That's what a society wants. In order to keep a society cohesive, it wants conformity, no matter what part of that society it is. The fact that he uses this contrast, too, of being drunk with being filled by God's Spirit is intriguing to me. I, 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 I really spent some time puzzling through this, thinking about this, because here's the thing. Quickly, I, I don't believe that this is a scriptural prohibition on alcohol. Paul, in 1 Timothy 5, he encourages Timothy to drink a little wine for his stomach problems. And of course, you know, temperance interpreters will say, well, that's because the water was bad, like they didn't know how to boil water back then or, or something like that. Timothy's trying to lead a church and there's a lot of factions. Makes sense to me that Paul said, hey, have a little wine for your stomach problem. But either way, Psalm 104 praises God who gave us wine to make our hearts glad. Jesus's first miracle was to take ordinary water and make it into wine. Copious amounts of it, I might say. So this is not some sort of temperance movement proof text. But, and here's the thing, the Bible consistently warns against drunkenness. And, and, you know, meaning that altered state, uh, allowing that altered state of mind and life to control our lives, to take control of our decision-making and our purposes and our, our, Proverbs 23 is my favorite commentary on that. And you want to understand a biblical standard on these things because it's hard to know. You know, we, we say things like this, you know, alcohol isn't prohibited by the Bible. Well, how much is, you know, I don't know, but, but Proverbs 23 is a great image of this to help us understand this. Have you ever read that? It's, it's poignant and yet it employs humor at the same time. Who has anguish? Who has sorrow? Who's always fighting? Who's always complaining? Who, who has unnecessary bruises? Who has, who has bloodshot eyes? It's the one who spends long hours in the taverns trying out new drinks in every craft beer. Don't <laughs> don't gaze at the wine, seeing how red it is, how it sparkles in the cup, how smoothly it goes down. For in the end, it bites like a poisonous snake. It stings like a viper. You will see hallucinations. You will say crazy things. You'll stagger like a sailor tossed to sea, clinging to a swaying mast, and you'll say, they hit me, but I didn't feel it. I, I didn't even know it when they beat me up. When will I wake up so I can look for another drink? That's not life. That's not the kind of life to live. That's not what God intended for life to be. That's not wise life. And here's the thing, and this is the big qualifier. For some, one drink is too many because a thousand is not enough. So a person has to know themselves, has to be honest with themselves and aware, self-aware enough to recognize if there are problems with that. Just because the Bible doesn't prohibit alcohol doesn't mean it doesn't place parameters on its use. Live wisely. That's what the Bible calls us to, a wise life. But here, Paul's contrast is interesting because it's all about influence. 
and, and largely, again, dealing with the thought processes. Alcohol, or more technically ethanol, is an outside influence that once it's ingested, it invades the bloodstream and then it interferes with the neuron and brain activity. So it means that we don't think accurately under its influence. Uh, our bodies aren't responding normally. We begin to engage in abnormal behavior because of what's happening there. He contrasts it with another outside influence, that of the Holy Spirit. And it's like he's saying, if you're going to be filled with something, some outside influence, let it be the Holy Spirit leading you into God's wisdom and God's purposes for life to find what it really means to live, to be alive as God intended it to be. And and his example then of how that would manifest is instructive. Because he says there in verse 19, to sing to one another, literally in the Greek, it says, speaking to each other in psalms, hymns, and spiritual poems. And it's worth taking note that what he's using there, not automatically we're thinking in terms of what we did this morning with a worship service and we're all singing songs together, but it's even more than that. The fact that he's using this terminology, these are all the ways in which the truth of scripture are presented to us. Psalms and hymns and poems and prayers of gratitude. And I really believe he's giving us a clue here as to what it is that he's getting at about this pursuit of wise life. I believe that we live wisely when we allow scripture to shape the way that we interact with others. Speaking these things, he says, to each other. And I believe that's one way in which Paul is indicating that that a person is under the influence of the Holy Spirit. The way that we interact with and communicate with others begins to mirror the wisdom uh, and the beauty of scripture. We're we're communicating with each other in ways that reflect God's purposes, God's goodness, God's good intent, not just the the stuff of this broken world. You know, honestly, so here's the thing. That is my little apology here, but that's why we place such a high emphasis on studying the scriptures when we get together here at Eastgate. And over the years, I mean, I've heard complaints, and it's not often, not many, but a few times where... Someone has complained to me about how much time we spend in Bible study here. And it's, you know, one person even said to me, and I really, I don't think they they recognized how it sounded when they said it, but they said, listen, I've already done the Bible study thing. I want something more exciting. And in their defense, listen, in their defense, I, I somewhat recognize what they're saying. I mean, I took it as a challenge not to let this practice become something that is an academic exercise. We're not here just to, you know, gather up information about God. That's not what we want. We certainly don't want to see studying the scripture as an end in itself. It's a tool to enable us to do what I believe Paul is encouraging here, to have our lives shaped by what we learn. So then it spills out of us in the way that we communicate and interact with each other, in the way that we live and conduct ourselves. But, you know, here's the thing, (laughs) boring or not, uh, we're going to keep at this because I was thinking about this. I get like 30 to 40 minutes of your attention every week. And after that, I mean, you got every other influence that's out there to, to, to look at. I mean, those days are filled with whatever you choose, TV, books, podcasts, 24 hour news entertainment, hopefully some Bible interaction in there somewhere. But when you come here, We're going to attend to God's word. We're going to present ourselves before his word so that the Holy Spirit can shape us and reshape our lives and our attitudes so that we reflect the beauty of God into this world because that's what we were called to do so that we can become this revelation 
of what it is that God intends to do with this whole world. Our lives can be revealing that goodness of God's intent. Okay, uh, I want to keep going here. Um, I'm going to read verse 21. So originally when I was working on this message, I was going to go from verse 15 through, because it's all one section, verse 15 through chapter 6, verse 9. Um, but man, I was getting into my head and just having all kinds of trouble trying to compress that down into something manageable or intelligible. Uh, uh, so I finally gave up and I've divided it into two. So today we're looking at part one of what is a two-part uh, study. So part two is going to be next week. And I really encourage you to, to come for that because that's when we're going to get into some stuff that is considered in some areas to be controversial um, at times. And if you've got a Bible open in front of you and if you read down a few verses, you'll understand uh, why. But we're going to today, uh, before we jump to that section, we're going to read uh, verse 21 because it's pretty important. Paul says this, he says in verse 21, and further, so that's connected with what he was talking about before, although I will say in the Greek that's not in there, that and further isn't there, but we know as the, the sentences are structured that it's part of this, so submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So this flows from his description of the spirit-filled life, not only do we speak to each other according to the wisdom of scripture, but we submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. And it's very clear in the wording in the original Greek that verse 21 is definitively connected with the verses that follow in the next section. We'll get to that next time. But think of it like a hinge. And this is important in your thinking. Think of verse 21 and what we're reading here like a hinge between verses 15 to 20 and verses 22 through six verse, chapter 6 verse 9. It's a hinge in between those two. So that makes it a focal point. And what it is that Paul is saying here. Think of it as a thematic connector to his, his line of thinking here. And that's going to be so important in our understanding of what it is that Paul is trying to communicate to us. So I want to look at this. Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now the English word submit is charged with a meaning that we bring to it from our own cultural surroundings. And what we bring with it may even include a bunch of baggage that we're carrying along with that conceptualization. So it's, I'm, I'm telling us that we need to be very careful about this. This is, like I said, this, this verse is dynamite. You wouldn't think of it. It's one little phrase. And, we're, you know, in English, we look at it and say, but, 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 yeah, that's nice. Go to, let's move on to the next thing. This is, this is, uh, well, I'll show you. It's huge. Now, the, 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 the word for submit in the Greek is hupotasso. Hupo means uh, under, and tasso means to set or to arrange something. So it's a word that actually has multiple meanings in, in the Greek. But literally, if you just break it down, it means to arrange something under something else. And here's where things get tricky, because when we think of the English word submit, we only think in terms of obeying someone who's in authority, right? Like you hear submit, like, so, okay, we're driving along and suddenly the, the lights are flashing from another car behind us. And so we know that's someone who has power over us, who has authority over us. We pull our car over because we, we think, oh, I'm going to submit. I have to submit to the uh, authority. Now, hupotasso in the Greek can mean 
that kind of obedience. But that is not the only thing that it means, and it is not its primary meaning, something to keep in mind. It is not likely what hupotasso means in this section or what Paul is trying to convey here in the employment of that word. If it were, then it'd be kind of a strange picture here where, you know, John could say to me, Rob, you know, you go out in the street and dance like a monkey right now. And well, Paul tells me I have to submit to him as though he's an authority. I'm compelled to obey him. I got it. It creates a bizarre picture, right? I mean, it's, it, it doesn't make any sense and it doesn't fit with any other practice that we see presented to us about Christian community anywhere else in scripture. In fact, back in the seventies, within the charismatic realms, there was this thing called the shepherding movement where people were trying to employ this kind of stuff where, you know, you're going to find a human shepherd that is an authority over you and you're going to have to submit to that. And the, the results were as devastating as it would, you would imagine they would be because that's just crazy stuff. You can't do that. That's not tenable. That's not even reasonable at all. But hupotasso has another meaning, which is more likely here. It's the idea of placing yourselves in a lesser standing than others, ranking or arranging yourself under as lesser than someone else. And that mirrors something Paul said in Philippians 2.3. Let's look at what he said there. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourself. Now, he's not using that word there, but it conveys that same concept that hupotasso conveys. Don't be on the lookout for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. What I believe Paul is conveying here in this passage in Ephesians is the same idea. And I believe the instruction is that we live wisely when we embrace an intentional humility in Christ. Intentional is an important word in that. An intentional humility in him. So here's the thing, and this is something that we are not good at as modern American evangelicals. We are, I'm not going to say we're not good at it. We're terrible at this. We always are superimposing our own Western culture over top of the text that we're reading from the ancient world. And it is so important to remember the historical context of when these words were written. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, class distinction and social standing was all important in, in, in that. I mean, the, the social hierarchy was so strictly enforced, it was even legally enforced in that culture. It was expected that people would wear clothing that reflected their status, that reinforced either their honorable or common status so that they could easily be identified and then treated accordingly. So if a person of man's, and again, this is all in the context of men, women didn't even factor into that in the ancient world. If a man's walking down the street and he's wearing a long white robe, well, you know, he's a senator or a patrician and you treat him with honor that he's required to receive. If he's wearing a, a coarse fabric to, toga, then he's a slave and you can ignore him or move right along. It doesn't mean anything. And it is not an understatement to say that status was everything in the ancient Roman world that Paul is writing to. It was an honor-shame-based society. A whole life could be spent trying to move incrementally along that social scale. It was everything. You have to see that 
in order to see just how scandalous that one little sentence that Paul drops in here actually is. So imagine you're someone who is born into a household of slaves. Uh, at a young age, you decide you're going to start taking whatever money you can earn uh, and you're going to start squirreling it away. And finally, you earn enough money. You find enough places to get money that you buy your freedom. And then you invest what monies you have after you've worked and you've been able to actually purchase a piece of property, which makes you a landowner, elevates your status suddenly in, in tremendous way within the Roman world. And it took years, took most of your life to be able to put all that together, to finally earn that position of status among those that were your peers. You're now wearing the attire of a landowner and plebeians have to, to make way for you in the street when they see you coming. You finally did it. You did the hard work. You got there. You earned it. You earned this place of honor and respect and status. And Paul comes in with a smile on his face and says, yes, scrap all that. Go back to seeing yourself in the lowest place. Treat plebeians as if they have a higher social rank. That is the stick of dynamite that Paul just threw in to the Roman social order of things. It's, it's no understatement to say that this is huge what he's just set up here. But here's the other danger, okay? So I'm, I'm giving you all the historical background. It would be easy to keep all of this in ancient Rome. Well, good for you, Paul. You tell those elitist Romans what for. We've moved on from that sort of thing. <laughs> And I'm glad you're laughing because human nature is pretty consistent through generations and cultures. So bringing it home to us and in, in trying to figure out how do we apply verse 21 to our lives, the real question is, who do we struggle with seeing as better than ourselves? Who do we have trouble treating with honor and dignity? Who do we feel superior to? Who do we feel that we have the right to order their lives or to tell them off or to call them names? Whether we're talking about, you know, through a keyboard and, and how we communicate online or whether we're texting in person using our mouths and talking to each other. Who do we feel that superiority to that God right now is calling each one of us and saying, Treat them as better than yourself. Our reverence, that is our loyalty to Christ, isn't revealed by how many morals that we try to impose on others or how boldly we pray in public or how many scripture memes we broadcast around online. An intentional humility in Christ, that is how the new humanity is revealed. An acknowledgement that everything we have is a gift of God's grace. And it would not be here, I would not be here were it not for him. It's just what he said in verse 20, giving thanks to God who's provided all of this for us. How do we reveal the new humanity in a confidence that we are loved by God and that is all the status that we'll ever need. That's how God's wisdom is lived out. And that, to me, is a lifetime pursuit.
Well, that's a lot to take in, and I'm getting a little declimped. So we'll, uh, we're, that's where we're going to stop today. Next week, we're going we're gonna to look at the other specifics of where this wisdom is lived out in, in our relationships. And we're ne- going to need to keep this idea of intentional humility in view as we read all of these things. We're definitely going to need that intentional humility as we read it all. So let's embrace this wisdom of God. Let's live as this new humanity, as people of heaven who've been planted here on earth. Let's reveal to this busted up world the wonder of God's goodness and his love for the human race that he made. And who knows what can happen when we do that? Who knows what will take place in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our society, in our country, if we can do that? Right on? All right, very cool. If you are able, will you stand with me, please? Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you even when it stings a little. You never called us to be comfortable. You called us to to take up a cross and to follow you. And so I pray, Father, that we as those who call themselves by your name, as Christians, I pray that we take up this challenge to emulate you and reflect you into this world who came not to be served, but to serve, who came and laid down his life so that others would live. I pray, Father, that we, as your church, will reflect that good news of heaven invading earth, of you setting all things right, and that we'll cooperate with that good purpose of your love. Father, fill our hearts with the knowledge that we're loved by you. I'm I'm more convinced than ever that if we can embrace that truth and and build our lives on the truth of your love, it can change everything. So in tangible ways this week, Father, reveal your love for your people. Reinforce that so that we find our security in that and we can give up the task that this world has taken up of gaining power over people and advancing our own egos. Help us, Lord to live grateful lives for all that you've provided and reflect your love into this world. I pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good deal. All right. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> That's a good question. All right. So let's uh, speak this blessing over each other before we bail out. May Christ be a light to illumine and guide you. Christ be a shield to overshadow you. Christ be under you. Christ be over you. Christ beside you, on your left and on your right, both in this world and the one to come. Go in peace, you children of God.